Welcome to Words Truth. Uh, this is Doug Presley, and we are continuing with our worship service. Uh, we're going to continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, and here we have the thought of the week for July 17, 2022. One of the largest distractions by far. Are you hearing some background noise? Is that my echo? No, I think that was, we may have to endure that, but go right ahead. <clears throat> okay. One of the largest distractions by far are from those who would substitute their morality over God's righteousness. There is a pride that comes from their works. The root of this is, again, they are comparing themselves with others. They can clearly see they are better, wiser, and make better decisions than others. If only others could behave like them, they would be good too. Because they see themselves as essentially good, then God must also see this as well. They assume that because God is good, surely he will see that they are good too. They do realize they are not perfect, but find it easy to excuse their shortcomings. They know they make mistakes and are not always good, but certainly God must know of their heart of sincerity, their honesty, and their integrity. They commend themselves for being far better than most. Again, they have rejected the bad news. God has already spoken, and none in Adam can change his mind. There is no one righteous, not even one. And that's from Romans chapter 3, verse 10. While they may be blind to their unrighteousness and depravity, God is not blind. Quote, there is no one who does good, not even one. And that's from Romans chapter 3 as well, from verse 12, the second half. And that is the thought of the week, and I'd like to offer my commentary on that thought of the week, that uh, clearly I see that there is an abundance of distractions and a terrible lack of distinction. As the thought of the week started out, this is only one of the largest distractions, this moral behavior. Many people treat Christianity as if it were a behavior modification program. They choose the behavior they think will put them in the best light. They miss the point of sanctification and perhaps gloss over the declarations and standards of God's reality of condemnation and justification. He tells us clearly in his word what these things mean. To me, in my experience, the self-declared moral superiors in the human religious organizations I've visited, told me that obedience means to do as I'm told, and yet major distinctions are missed, and yet those major distinctions are exactly what are needed to fully understand righteousness from God's perspective. So let us diligently and humbly seek God's word and meaning and understand that instead of just simply doing what we're told or doing what we think is right. And that is my commentary on the thought of the week, and now I'll pass it over to Fred for prayer. Okay, 
Amen. Thank you, Dwight. Um, at this time, uh, I'd like to know if there's anybody in any special prayer, any special prayer request. Well, I, I would just want to want to make sure that we remember the Sneed family, especially Dave and and his family at this hour of their loss. Okay, let us come before Sovereign Lord in, in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Lord, we're grateful, Lord, for this opportunity, Lord, to come before you and have the opportunity and the power and spirit, Lord, to learn more and to be transformed by your power and your word. Lord, we have, as you know, we have death in our family, Lord, as our brother David Steve, our brother in Christ, who's lost his daughter. We're asking, Lord, that you Muted. would come by and put your loving arms and comfort Dave and his family, uh, his entire family, comfort them as they go through this grieving process uh, and this whole process. You will do comfort and be with them, Lord. Also asking, Lord, that you would uh, see about my sister Gail Haddon and her family as they all are burdened with COVID. Lord, this is a troublesome time as many people are affected by COVID, Lord, and we ask that you would watch over your loved ones in these matters. Thank you, Lord, for, again, this opportunity of fellowship and learning more about your word and your grace, asking for a special prayer for the word is truth, our church that you would bless us and bless our pastor as he delivers the message that he might be empowered by your spirit. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Thanking the Lord for your blessings in Christ's loving name. Amen. Unmuted. Amen. Amen. Thank you, um, Fred and Dwight. Amen. So we we are um, continuing where we left off, and um, notwithstanding, we did have a loss in our church family. Just wanted to uh, bring out the fact that uh, we lost Lenora Sneed a couple days ago now, a few days ago, I guess. And I uh, just want to remember uh, a special prayer for Dave and family as we continue. Um, just have that in your heart so that uh, the Lord knows our concern for, for them and that we care for them. Uh, we pray for um, their healing. Such a, an important part of their family has been removed, and Lord, you know best. So, but we're continuing. 
where we left off in John chapter 17. And um, I'm getting to my notes here. We have uh, our fourth swing at this. So we're going to hopefully be able to do this in four. I know it's three swings, three strikes and you're out in baseball, but three swings, but we're, we're taking a fourth swing here. So let's get to it and uh, let's see how this goes. So I am, <clears throat> I'm going to, fo our focus is John 17 and 21, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. As we begin to dig into this special calling Jesus is praying about, we can see the familiar dynamics introduced earlier. To note, these dynamics were new to the disciples' ears. Never has any believer had this unique access to the members of the Godhead. Quote, In him you, and through him, a faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, as Ephesians 3.12. We must ask ourselves, since God has graced us with so much, who exactly are we? I like the thought from Job, quote, What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention, Job 7 and 17. One unique feature of man is that we are created in the image of God. That's Genesis 1.27. And this seems to be a good place to start. Yeah, we are a new creation. And so we cover, we, this, this is a very detailed verse. I guess you already know that, at least from my perspective, I think it's very detailed because we have uh, been dealing with it for three lessons. There are some lessons I really want to make sure we get from this that we don't move on until we do. That we are put in the same position as the disciples to believe this information. Yeah, this is what the world, the Christian world, I feel, has neglected. So I am bringing greater emphasis to it and I will quote this one verse in John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So when Jesus is telling the disciples this information, it is incredulous. It is unbelievable. It is outside of the, the normal theological understanding that they would have as Israelites. Why? Why would we say this? Because this information was hid in God. Why is Jesus telling the disciples about it now? It's because <clears throat> it is his objective that they be brought up to speed because they are going to be part of the foundation of this new entity called the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Hopefully you understand the breadth of that, that this is not just telling them information that, hey, be faithful, yeah, hang in there. God has a plan for you. 
You know, he's giving specific information, specific teaching with regard to how we are to conduct ourselves. And after Pentecost, he gives dates, specifics to this information. These are real things that have happened. I mean, I, how do I emphasize that even more? But these are things that are were in the, the Father's heart that are going to be played out, executed at Pentecost. So we can't go over the whole thing again, and I won't try to do that. Um, but I'm going to try to pick up to where we left off, uh, and that is point number three. May they also be in us. We didn't finish this. Uh, I know we're at point E. But we're going to look at point D, just so we can have some rehearsal of what we have gone over. So point D, 3D says, when we think about reconciliation, we think of Jesus as the mediator bringing us to the Father for salvation. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. There is another reconciling to think, think of through Christ, the Father, chose us for this unique calling from eternity past, and the Son is our ground of reconciliation to this calling in time. <clears throat> How do we fulfill this calling? We already went to a couple of verses, Ephesians 1.4, which talks about, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Well, that, the only way we could fulfill that is to be born in the time period where God is calling out those many sons. Who controls that? Certainly we don't control when we're going to be born. God controls that. And then we have to be um, come to salvation, which God already knows we're going to do. But the point of it all is not our salvation. The point of it all is that we, are been, we have been chosen for this special designation in Christ. So that, <clears throat> for that to be fulfilled, is recon we are being reconciled to what God has, has chose us way back before the universe was created. I sound a little weird, I guess, to some people talking about things that happened before the universe was created, like something that happened yesterday. I can talk about it like that because we have been given the spirit of truth who has made these things available and known to us. So this information isn't just out there in some book that we pull off the sh shelf and then dust it off before we open it up. No, this is in our hearts. Why? Because this information is what God the Holy Spirit has brought to the table. It's part of our spiritual development, is to know these things. So the, that's an interesting thought, just to, to say that we're reconciled to this, just like we're reconciled to salvation, when we're reconciled to the Father for salvation. Christ is a mediator between God and man to bring us to God, and Christ is the mediator between God and man to fulfill this eternal destiny as well.
we are conformed, being conformed to the image of his son. So that's where we were going. May they also be in us. So um, point E, they also, uh, that is the father and the son reside in us. Now, you know, as we look at this, we don't always look at it from the standpoint of uh, the father and the son. For, for, someone, for someone to talk about we're in Christ and Christ is in us, that's common information. We have, I wouldn't even say that's common because that is part of this theological uh, part that was hidden. We didn't get this part about God prior to it being revealed. But this whole Christ in us and us in Christ. But what we need to really fully understand is that that facilitates what happens with our relationship with the Father. So Christ brings us into relationship with the Father. I guess I kind of dealt with that in the previous point, but I'm saying it again because it says, may they also be in us. Now how, how do we get to be in the Father and the Father in us? Well, both of them come when Christ comes. So you could say that our induction into Christ is also our induction into the Father. And we can reverse that because we know mutual possession speaks of both sides of it. It speaks of not only what we have by exploring all that they have, but what they have by exploring all that we have. You say, well, what do we have to bring to the table? What do we have to offer? We have our lives. That's what you have. That's valuable to God. The fact that you have time and space here on in, in time. And he wants to be able to use that time as an opportunity to talk about his eternal purpose. And the gospel too as well. So that, that's the major thought, right? What, what do we have? What do they have? Well, they have the mystery, the eternal purpose of the Father. All that which was hidden is now available to us. Now, just keep in mind, you say, well, yeah, we got the New Testament. Yeah, but it wasn't available to Israel. But now it's available to us. That's the exploration of the Father and Christ. Right? But this is what God is revealing, and we are the prime, those who are primed to be able to understand this information. <clears throat> you can see the disciples struggled with it and believing it. So if you don't believe it, how can you grow into it? If you read it, but you don't understand it or you don't believe it, you can't grow into it. That's why when God is telling us there's something coming, it's not emotion, it's not going to be something that just overwhelms you emotionally, this is going to be something that you need to intellectually grapple with, theologically grapple with. This is bringing God closer than he ever has been before. I mean, we could look at Things, this is interesting, we look at things with telescopes that are far, far away. 
the telescopes bring those things closer to us so we can examine the solar systems, the galaxies. Uh, of course, we can't really see that far because the universe is far. It is vast. So, but when we are able to get these telescopes that bring things that are very far into our view, it is telling. We learn a lot. Scientists are able to discover a lot more about what they didn't previously know about this fantastic, phenomenal universe that we happen to live in. So, but now we have even greater telescopes that are bringing things that were so far distant. Yeah, some of it would take, I don't know, billions of years for the light to reach us. By the time the light reaches us, the light had to have traveled at the speed of light, which is 187,000 miles per second. The light would have to travel that far just so we can even see the light twinkling in the sky. That's what we see. But that's how far the light has to travel for us to see it. That's how distant these things are from us. But now we got telescopes that even go further so we can learn more and more. So enough of that analogy, but the analogy is to say that the mystery is the revelation of God. We, we couldn't even see this information at all before. It is like we now have greater lenses with which to see. But that greater lens is God the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of truth and revelation. That's what this is. We have. So we, we shouldn't be getting out our dancing shoes. We should be getting out our pencils and paper and notebook and get ready to take notes on what God is revealing to us. Because that is the kind of information that we are getting ready to grapple with. It's not going to challenge our emotional framework. It's going to challenge our intellectual framework. So that's why he is said to be the spirit of truth. It, why is it truth? Because this is coming from God. Can we be sure? Is this something I made up or others made up? Absolutely not. This is testified, confirmed by God through signs, wonders, and miracles. So we, we know this information is valid. We know it's true. We know it's God confirmed it. We know this is the direction that God wants us to walk in. Even though we saw people, even in the time of Christ, who denied his existence as the Son, the Messiah, even in the face of all of those things I just mentioned, signs, wonders, and miracles. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to be like them in this regard, we are going to embrace that these things are true, that God made us like this. This is his word. So when it says they also, may they also be in us, it is saying, one, and this is not in the two points that I'm getting ready to read, but it is also saying, I should say, that we are receiving the same dynamics as those disciples are going to get. So when Jesus talked about them, on that day you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you, and you know, 
He who loves me and keeps my commands, we will come to him and we will make our home with him. This is, I will love them, the Father will love them. All those things, we could, some might say, wow, that's just for the disciples. That, they're the apostles. They get that information. But no, they also is referring to all of them who would believe in me through their message. That's all of us. That means something, this dynamic is part of the entire church age. But you might say, of course, Doug, we already know that. We know that. I'm just saying, here is the documentation for it. Because, believe me, some will challenge this. How do you know you get this? How do you know that this is true of you? Well, here it is, right here. We've read it in John 17, right here. It says, let's just rehearse it. Because it's important. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also who will believe, for, for those who will believe in me through their message. <laughs> it's this verse 21. That all of them. All of them. Not some of them. All of them. May be one. And he goes into this whole thing. Which we know. Is the mutual possession that he spoke about earlier. That that would happen to the disciples and the mutual possession that he and the Father has currently in the time of speaking. So it's, it's the same thing that we're getting. So all I'm saying for you is what Jesus says. And I will read these two verses again so you keep the context. Because, listen, you can't grow into what you don't believe in. If you don't believe this, Listen, this is mind-altering. This is mind-augmenting when it comes to God. You didn't know this information. This, is, wasn't, this wasn't in the Old Testament somewhere. you got to look at it for what it is. This is what Jesus says about it when, when he confronted Philip. And this is in John 14, right? This is what he says. Don't you know me, Philip? This is verse 14.9. Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You know this is supernatural. So when God does something supernatural, it is to draw attention to something he has to tell us. For instance, he freed the slaves who were in Israel. Right, the, the Israelites. He freed the slaves from Israel. He didn't just slay all the Israelites and say, okay, walk away. He brought them out through a series of dem- and demonstration of his power. His power to those Egyptians. And he showed how he had more power than them. And he did it through these signs, these wonders, these various miracles. And Everything God does, that's how he announces it. And what did that lead to? The greatest revelation of God, which we call the Mosaic Law. 
to his new people. And so whenever we see the signs, wonders, and miracles, well, we saw them with Christ. Well, what did that to tell us? Something more important than just the signs, wonders, and miracles, it should tell us that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. John says, I'm writing these things that he did many other things that are not written in this book. That these, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. By believing, you will have life in his name. Important information, the gospel. Jesus came to ratify, confirm that. What confirmed it? All those signs, wonders, and miracles. If we get focused only on the signs, wonders, and miracles and miss the message behind it, we have done ourselves tremendous disservice. We've been distracted by the enemy into things that do not uh, talk about that reconciliation that we talked about earlier. We need to come to the calling that we have. All right, so why am I spending all this time focused on this point? It's because the Christian world today is not focusing on this point. And, and the emphasis needs to be here because they deny that this is some altering thing that happens to us, that we are somehow different than the Israelites. They think it's the same thing. God has just relaxed his standards and we don't have to keep the law, but we're just like them. We just have the same things that they had. And so therefore we can look at the life of Daniel and Moses and others to talk about what, what's going on in our life as a mode of operation for us. We cannot. We have something new. And, there, and it was also testified to us by signs and wonders and miracles. And we know the direction of God. So it's clear that all of us have this. Every one of us who are would believe in me, in him, through their message. So that's it right there in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, right? That all of them, all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we're ready to move on. Okay, so we're at point three, and we're looking at E now. They also, that the Father and the Son reside in us. So the first, there are two points under there. One is in time for fellowship, right? So these are two aspects of it. One is 1 John 1, 3. I think we should know this one. 1 John 1, 3 says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I just want to make a point about this John 1.3. You might have read this over and over and not really focused on it. Right? So the fellowship that John is saying he has is this unique fellowship that Jesus was talking about. John was right there when he says that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, and so forth and so on. We're going to get into more of it. But John understood that. 
it's a unique relationship and fellowship that we have that's different from every other human being that we could ever say ever will ever live outside of this time. It is unique. The fellowship is not just, oh, we're getting along great with God. God is a great, he's great, let's praise him, let's extol him, let's magnify him. We could say all that. However, there's something more to this fellowship. And if you don't get the more, then you don't get the fellowship that he's talking about. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. Fellowship with us means that you'll be on the same page as us. That we have this fellowship based on information that we have. And the fellowship we have is a fellowship with the Father and with the Son. There it is. And what do you mean with the Father and with the Son? Because those are the very things that we go back to John 17 and read that all of them may be one Father. One. And that they may also, who's they? The Father and the Son may also be in us. See, at this time when Jesus wrote it in John chapter 17, it was still future. But when John writes it, here in 1 John 1 3, it is wasn't it is the current status of believers at that time. But guess what? Believers don't all believers don't avail themselves of this. So what, what is John saying? I'm praying that you may also have fellowship with us. Even when we talk about fellowship, there's a, a and to what extent? are we talking about? Why can we have this particular fellowship? It's because of this mutual possession that we experience. That's why. So Israel doesn't have this. Israel doesn't have the dynamics for this fellowship. Anybody who is outside of this age does not have the dynamics to talk, to even begin the conversation to have the fellowship that we have the members of the Trinity. This is unique. So this is why 1 John 1, 3 is part of it. And Ephesians 2, 22, what does that say? Let me just read that. Ephesians 2, 22 says, And in him, you too, in Christ, obviously this is unique because um, not everybody is in Christ. Israel is not in Christ. This is unique for those of us who are in the church age. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So you're, this, is, this is, talk about an exclusive circle. This dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, we are invited into that by virtue of that that we have these spiritual dynamics that exist within us. Not just some of us, all of us have this. All of us in this age. And these are, these are what God is doing. And obviously this is an eternal state. You know, this is what part of what God wanted in the beginning when he 
called these many sons into glory. So we are being built. In other words, it's not finished at the time of writing by the apostle together with to become. To become means what God's ideal, what his purpose for this dwelling is, is in which God lives by his spirit. So obviously if we're in this unique place with God, then we have this proximity, this closeness, this fellowship that is unique and is part of what we talk about as a, it, it, you would say would be the result of the baptism of the Spirit. It would be the result of what these dynamics have created in us. We will be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We'll be like him in all his ways. Why? He'll be in us and we'll be in him. That's internally. There's something special about it. It's just like you can look at the outside of a house and you could ride by all you want. And you could see it. And there's a lot you can learn about that house from looking at it on the outside. But you can't really know what's going on in that house until you look on the inside. When you look on the inside, you see all the custom things, the paintings that the, the owners liked and their style. You begin to see their personality. What they chose, the decisions they made shows us what comforts that they liked and enjoyed and what their entertainment and, and, and art and all the things that you might recognize from the inside, you can't see from the outside. This unique place is what God saw before he created all things. This is what he wanted. Sure, externally, externally people are kind of going to see more about who God is. <clears throat> That's in verse 21. In him, the whole building joined together rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Well, a temple is for other people to enjoy. But on the inside of the building, that's for us. That's that unique fellowship. That's point one, E1, E2, in eternity. To satisfy the Father's plan to have eternal fellowship with the sons and daughters through Christ. Right, so that's the Father's plan. It wasn't just to bring many sons into glory. It was to have these sons, to have intercourse, back and forth, conversationally, to interact. The fact that these are not just creatures that we can pat on the head and say, good boy, good girl, good boy. No, we're going to have social intercourse with them. God is saying, I, they're going to be like us. They're going to be just like us. We're going to be able to share with them and they're going to be able to share with us because we're like beings. We're creatures who are responsive to one another. We're creatures who are socially interactive with one another. We can share our hearts, our dreams, our visions, our ambitions. We can talk about what what we, all of us, eventually want to become. This is what we do now, right? We, we can do that now. I would say things are going to be different because we'll be out of human history in the eternal state. So what we're going to talk about and, and all the things that we have to talk about will stem from all the things that God, God is. 
God is eternal. We're not just talking about having fellowship with some persons that are here. Our fellowship is with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of God. So I could go on because the reason why there's four parts to this is because I have gone on. So I'm going to try to conclude some of these thoughts because if I don't, it'll be five parts. It might already be. So um, back to this is point one and two, right? Um, so we said in time for fellowship and in eternity to satisfy the Father's plan to have eternal fellowship with the sons and daughters through Christ. And that's Romans 8.29 where it says <clears throat> part of this, Paul understood it this, and gave it to us this way. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's where I get this thought from. This is what God wanted. I mean, we couldn't have wanted this for ourselves because we couldn't have even known that this was possible to want. This is something God knew that would happen and wanted for us. He wants something out of this. Not only do we get something, do we benefit from it, but we should know that God also benefits from this. Why can I say that? Because he's the one who chose us. He's the one who came up with this plan. He wants something out of this. It screams at me through, even if I go back to Genesis, and when Adam was naming all of the animals, and he did not find one that was suitable uh, for him. Then he said, uh, it is not good that man should be alone. God put man to sleep and brought forth the woman out of man. Now this is some person. This is another being that is like him. It's not just another being. Like he goes, okay, you're a woman, so you get over in that line over there. No, this is unique. She's part of him. Bone of his bone. Flesh of his flesh. This is the analogy that we get in Ephesians chapter 5. I could read it for you. But since I'm in Ephesians, I will. You're probably saying, I know, I know, I know. I'm going off the beaten path. So let's read it. Um, these are the analogies given, right? So uh, I'm going to start at verse 29. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, is he talking about physical? No. <laughs> he's using the physical, but on the physical, he's writing this whole spiritual thought. He's He's building this whole spiritual thought on the physical. But the point of all of this is the spiritual thought. The reality of what God the Father did from eternity past. Verse 33, however. <laughs> what do you mean, however? Each one of you also 
must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband, right? So was he really talking about husband and wife? No. <laughs> but so you don't get it confused and 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 respect the, the marital relationship. He says, yeah, well, even though that wasn't my subject, by the way, I'll say it for the people who only see that. Okay, but that's not my subject. So notice the woman is just like the man. She's taken from the man, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Right? This is why we are able to have fellowship with these members of the Trinity. And there's so many ways that God has taught us this. We're going to keep moving, though. Uh, point F. This is 3F. This is mutual possession. That we are in them and they are in us. We could say, like we were just talking about, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. That's a physical analogy, obviously. But bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, speaks of this thing I'm trying to get at. That this relationship is not just some spiritual thing that hovers over our head. It's really uh, not true of us. But it's just something God wants us to think. No, it's just something that happened to us. This is the reality. Even if you don't feel it, if you don't experience it, it's true. What Christ is trying to say, if, believe, if you don't believe, believe on the evidence that works themselves. That you know God made this so by his showing up here on the scene and testifying to it. You know it's true. So this is what mutual possession is. We are in him. And, and notice, not just in him, in Christ, but in them. And they are in us. We are in them. And they also, or, or said in Jesus' word, may they also be in us. We are mutually possessed by the members of the Trinity. There's a lot that we need to talk about in terms of the results of what it means, the fact that we are mutually possessed by the members of the Trinity. What, what does that mean for us? We're going to be talking about that for quite a while. Before we get into all the, the detail of that, nothing, first of all, is bigger than this fact that we have this, all of the other things that we might talk about are results of the facts that we are in him or them and they are in us. That is the goal of God. Point G. It's just a scripture, not just, but a scripture, Philippians 1.20, where it talks about the experiential part of our position in Christ, where we begin to experience it. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Notice, whether by life or by death. Stop and think for a second what, what he's saying. Whether by life or by death. You know, by death, well, we already know what's going to happen. Christ will be exalted in his body because he is in Christ right but by life means now Paul is saying I want that now I want Christ to be exalted in my body now and if that happens on this side of 
of things, while we're still in enemy territory, is going to be suffering. That's what's going to happen. Plenty of suffering. Because Christ did that, and he was killed. They hated him. There was one verse that said, without cause. They didn't really have a cause. They should have embraced Christ. They said, man, we got something like this. We ought to make this something that um, everybody can take advantage of. Instead, they want to kill him because they want power for themselves. Anyway, so let's continue on. <clears throat> so whether by life or by death, that's Philippians. So the more you understand this information, the more you're going to see the scriptures just pop out at you. Like, just like that. Point number four, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, so now, so all of that, there is also a testimony to the world, to all the visible creatures that are here as well. So there's testimony on both sides of this. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's dig into this a little bit. The world rejected Jesus to his face when he came the first time. Some in the world believe, but most of the world rejected his claim. So that's what we understand. When we look at the world, the world rejected Christ and they crucified him. Christ didn't just show up to effect the Father's eternal purpose. He showed up to uh, to reveal the salvation plan of the Father, and the, and that included everybody. And if we didn't go back to Abraham, and and you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So we we got this information, and we know that the world is involved with respect to Christ. At some point in the future, Christ is going to come, and. He will destroy this world. So it's almost like one thing. You look at the Titanic sinking, and you could say, okay, I got a lot of, you know, I could see that the ship is going to sink, and if I don't do anything, everybody will be lost. Christ came to save, not to just talk about the fact that we're lost. He came to save. So whoever believes in him, can be saved. Imagine, if whoever believed could have been saved in the Titanic. Would, would they have believed? Right? That's, we, can, we could say that's <clears throat> crisis evangelism, but in reality, there's going to be a judgment to this world. That's maybe not be right this moment, but it's soon to come. And the judgment's going to be severe. Those who don't avail themselves of God's offer of grace will be destroyed. And that's true. So the, this is a testimony to the world, not just to us and all that we've just talked about, but it is also a testimony to the world. And this is the world that has ultimately rejected Christ. Now Christ is saying these things just before he goes out. If you look at 18... John 18. Um, remember, all this is getting ready to happen. 18.1. When he had finished praying, 
Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So we start going into the narrative of them arresting Christ and all the things that he went through and the hatred that they displayed. We're talking about to the next ruler of this world. He came, he presented his platform, he showed that in the next world there will be healing from all diseases and sickness and weather events and you name it. Christ showed and demonstrated who he would be to this world. And they rejected him. It was almost as if the world chose Barabbas rather than Christ. A murderer, somebody like them. This is what we are. There's none righteous, not even one, none who do good. So who are we going to choose, Christ or Barabbas? We would have chosen Barabbas. So he came to his own, even those who should have had more uh, understanding of who he was, but even they rejected him. In fact, to, to add insult to injury, they were the ones who crucified him. So, I don't want to talk about the rejection of this world, and Christ is saying that all of this is getting ready to happen. The hatred that they showed him, they beat him, they mocked him. You're a king? <laughs> You're a king? Prophesy who hit you. They spit in his face. They pulled out his beard. I mean, they, they just insulted him in every way they could. And yet, he is the creator of all things. This is the one. In him, all things were created, whether they be thrones or dominions or powers. All things were created by him and for him. This is the world gone astray. This is what sin can do in all of its enormity. So, just first point is just to note that, that Jesus is saying that they will certainly understand and believe that you have sent me. And this is for a testimony, right? That the world rejected Jesus to his face, but when he came the first time, some in the world believed, but most of the world rejected his claims. Even Jesus said, few there be, that find it. Point B, <clears throat> a brief look at Pilate's interaction with Jesus speaks for itself. And well, since I'm already there in John 18, I'm going to look at 28 through 40. How did Pilate, Pilate view Jesus? This is the next ruler of the world. Let's, let's look at this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place, um, am I at the, yes, to the place of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning. So remember, he had had this whole thing with the Sanhedrin. He was brought before them, and they beat him and all that. They were angry at him. They wanted to kill him, but they brought him to Pilate to have him killed. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, why? Because the Passover was coming. They did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Imagine that. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what, are, what, are you, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. 
very smart, right? really, really, you know, cynical attitude. <clears throat> and look, you just do what we tell you to do. Don't ask a lot of questions. We handed them over to you. Obviously, there's a problem, right? Verse 31, Pilate said, take them yourselves and judge them by your own law. And this is what they said. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And they wanted to execute. They wanted him executed. And Pilate is like, well, I don't care. So then that's true. They didn't have the right to execute anyone. That, that right was solely under Pilate's jurisdiction. And because they weren't the rulers of the land, but Pilate was. So they, <clears throat> they took, this is verse where Pilate said, take them yourselves, you judge him, but they have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Okay, then Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says here, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Is that what you heard? What do you see in me? And this is Jesus standing before Pilate, beaten, spit upon, just buffeted. I mean, just, so obviously, Pilate doesn't look at Jesus as some sort of king, in, especially in the way he's presented. Verse 35, am I a Jew, Pilate replied. In other words, what do I know about your own religious stuff? Right? You, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Uh, why are you here? What do you, what is, testify. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate to Jesus. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world, into the world, is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what does Pilate say? What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews and gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. In other words, what has he said or done that is worthy of death? So I'm not going to continue on with this, but I just wanted to give you the flavor of that exchange. I mean, you could keep reading on all the way down to where in verse 40, they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Uh, so they didn't want Jesus released. They just brought him to Pilate, not to be flogged, but to be executed, hung on a cross to die. So just to note this brutal treatment of Jesus is you could say this is just the ultimate insult to the Creator Christ did not return insult for insult point C the father was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation so when even when we look at the horrible way christ was treated these are sins that they were committing against the lord the creator and yet none of those sins 
are con condemning because God is not holding those sins against them. This is the message we have. Even in the face of this brutal treatment of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not to get emotional about it. We are to understand what all of this actually means. It shows that God was satisfied with the work of Christ on behalf of all the sins of all people. And that's the message that we already have. If we were with emotion about it, we could say, well, God, you should cast the Jews away for all that they have done. Or you should destroy the Jews for all that they have done. But that's not the message of the gospel committed to us. They treated him horribly, but that's, that wasn't it. Point D, Jesus is the object of the gospel. The Father is the one giving it. See, so John 5, 24 speaks of that. I'll just read it. John 5 and 24 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, notice, he could easily have said believes in me, but he says to help us understand, believes him who sent me. So the gospel doesn't come from Jesus Christ. It comes from the Father. And to the extent that we hear the gospel from Jesus, it is through Jesus. And Jesus is very transparent here. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Because the one who sent Christ is the one whose word it is coming out of Christ's mouth. So that's the point that I'm making. Jesus is the object of the gospel. The Father is the one giving it. Point E. This is John 3.16, expanded translation. It's my translation. <laughs> but So just to expand on it a little bit. For God, and that is God the Father, loved, so loved the world. And, uh, and what does that mean? It means he was so motivated, committed, devoted to provide salvation to all on his righteous terms that he gave his one and only son. He sent Jesus into the world as a sacrifice, a propitiation. Uh, he judged all the sins of the world in Christ, his beloved son, whom he would be uh, his right arm in the redemption plan. So that, whoso that whosoever believes in him that means anybody, anyone who believes, trusts, relies on Jesus for the matter of their salvation, shall not perish. That is, come to destruction in the lake of fire, but have eternal life. That means we'll have God's life, which is sufficient to live with God forever. So it just expands it a little bit, and it helps us to understand more about the Father's work through the person of Christ. Point F, we're just closing in now. We're, we're going to be finishing this. Even though the world does not believe in the testimony of the Father, this is point F, it is a witness against them. <clears throat> and then, then we read Revelation 20, 11, 12 for that. We'll just look at that, Revelation 20. 11 and 12 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, 
the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there's no more information being recorded in the books anymore. Whatever's going to be recorded in there has already been written. Human history is over. So now it's a matter of looking at the books. But notice in this point that I'm making, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, judge, the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Not just the book that has to do uh, with works, right? It has to do with um, Christ. Right? How did the world respond to Christ? That is a factor in the eternal judgment. One, does their works merit the works that are acceptable as far as God's perfect, righteous, holy standard? Does their works match that? And the answer has to be no. God already told us there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who do good, not even one. So we already have the answer to that. And then the second thought at the eternal judgment of all unbelievers is the fact that they, the other book is open. Maybe God missed a name or two. Maybe that's possible, but it's not. And somehow their name is written in the book of life. If, there's an, if their name's in there, they can't be thrown into the lake of fire because then Christ's righteousness covers them. They're imputed the righteousness of Christ. But when they look at that book, they look at the other book, the other book says no, first book says no, they don't match the holy standards and righteousness of God. All of their works, their good, their goodness, none. The second thought, that they don't have the righteousness of Christ covering them. And we should know the only reason we are saved in the first place is because of Christ's righteousness. Because even if all of our sins were paid, that's not enough for us to be saved. We have to have a righteousness that matches the righteousness of God. So we need both. Believing brings both of those things to us. Now, first of all, God didn't ask us about whether our sins... We, he already paid for our sins, even before we were born. All that was already done. But righteousness now, for us, is the issue. So, um, so this is why I say, even though the world does not believe in the testimony of the Father, it is a witness against them. And we just read why. Point G, last point here, the incarnation, in the incarnation, God drew as close to man as he possibly could. The Father was here in Christ doing the work as we saw in these verses, right? Uh, especially 14, 10, and 11, we saw the Father is the one doing the work. And what does John five seventeen say? Let's look at that. John 5 and 17 say, in defense, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work 
to this very day, and I too am working. So that's what it means by the Father is doing His work, His work. Notice, His work. And is here in us, still doing his work, as we saw in John 17, 21, the very verse we have been dealing with, the Spirit was always here from the beginning, constantly working on the Father's plan. And we saw in verse uh, chapter 14 and verse 17. So interesting, when you read that, it says, when Jesus is introducing the Spirit of truth, he says, the Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. So notice where he lives with you is to say the Holy Spirit has been attending the disciples. How could they possibly understand spiritual things were it not for the ministry of the Holy Spirit? But he will be in you. The Spirit reject the world was rejected, uh, rejecting the Spirit of Truth. Well. Spirit of Truth, with that title, wasn't happening until Pentecost. But the Spirit of God has been around trying to turn humanity, fallen humanity, to the only hope of salvation, which is in Christ. So, let's keep going here in point G. <clears throat> They're constantly working on the Father's plan. And the Son added humanity to his person forever when it comes to the incarnation uh, and there's a couple of verses that we'll conclude with one is 1 Timothy 3.16 let's read that one and beyond all question the mystery from which true godliness springs is great he appeared in the flesh was vindicated in the, by the spirit was seen by angels and preached and was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So this is, like I was saying, God's coming or drawing close to us. And then Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we see as well, um, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human, in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, we understand how God did it, we understand the, the import of it. It is a testimony to all the world what happened in the person of Christ. And that same person who went through all of this will be seen again in his glory in this world. So it is a testimony to this world. And he will actually rule this world with a rod of iron. We're going to conclude these thoughts. I know we're coming against the end of our time here. We just want to, as we conclude, think about, as we go over all of this, you have the notes, and we can continue this conversation as we go forward. Uh, this, this is not something you just put on the shelf. 
and you say, okay, we learned that. This is something you put in your heart so that as we continue to grow, continue to look at more, we see the progressive nature of what God is trying to reveal to us in Christ. Let's bow our heads as we close. We'll continue with this context next week. Thank you, Father, for this time you've given us. Again, we are overwhelmed with thankfulness for what you have shown us here in the Word, the reality of what you did for us here, and what has already been accomplished even before we even know it. Thank you, Father. All we can say is we're grateful for this priceless gift that you have given us. And as we come to understand who we are in Christ and grow in grace, we pray that we will have the knowledge and the wisdom, the confirmation that you said you would give us by interacting with us, living in us, Christ being magnified in our bodies, all of these things uh, we pray as we continue to focus our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for this church, Father. We pray for uh, that we will continue to advance in this understanding and your calling of us, what we should be focused on in this world. Come what may. Give us not only wisdom, but courage to be able to speak for Christ to talk about what is important to you, Father, uh, as we are in this world right now. <clears throat> All these things, Father, we're also praying uh, for, the, for the loss, again, uh, that we have experienced uh, just a few days ago, where we lost uh, Lenora Sneed, which is Dave's daughter. Father, we're continuing to pray for the Sneed family, uh, even now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.